This podcast is brought to you by Upcase. Improve your development skills by completing coding exercises that are peer-reviewed by real humans. Learn more at upcase.com. Hey, and welcome to Reboot, where we talk about big career changes. I'm Adarsh Pundit in San Francisco. This is episode four of season one, and today we'll be talking to my friend Jim Perry, a professional poker player who trained as a civil engineer and played baseball at Duke, where he pitched, and now is looking for his next career adventure. Hey, Jimmy, how's it going? Uh, it's going pretty good, Adarsh. Uh, glad to be on the podcast. Yeah? How are you doing today? Doing pretty well. Uh, just spent a big afternoon uh, playing around with spreadsheets. I'm trying to make a very detailed uh, daily fantasy basketball player analysis and projection spreadsheet. That's interesting. Why are you doing that? Um, just an obsessive games player. I'm in the pursuit of a, a job in that industry right now. And so in order to maybe learn a little bit more about the industry and what they do, uh, I started using the site and playing the games and course i want to i want to do well in the games so i tried to do some analysis and some uh took took a lot of data trying to crunch some numbers and in the process it's helping me learn a lot about spreadsheets and data manipulation and uh it's giving me a chance to to learn some new skills that i didn't have before nice and you mentioned that this is a new job that you're looking for yeah i'm applying for a position in business data analytics with a daily fantasy sports company and hoping to get a position with them. Uh, so the, this is kind of, it's kind of fun and kind of a hobby. And it's also kind of teaching myself and preparing myself maybe for something that would come up in the interview. So is this a new career for you? Potentially? Hopefully. Yeah, hopefully. I, I, uh, very interested in the company. I'm very interested in daily fantasy sports. It hits a lot of intriguing points for me. Well, I guess maybe tell me what you do now. That might be the more relevant place to Sure. Well, to start. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a professional poker player. So daily fantasy sports is similar to professional poker because there's a gambling aspect and there's a lot of number crunching and there's, you're playing a, a game with set rules and strategy against other people and trying to make better decisions than they do. And how long have you been a poker player? I've been a professional poker player for about seven and a half years. Wow. Yeah, it's been a while. I really didn't think I would necessarily be doing this for this long, but I have to say it's been a pretty good, pretty good seven and a half years. That's awesome. I assume you didn't uh, get a degree in college studying poker. No, no. I graduated in 2005 uh, with an undergraduate degree in civil structural engineering, and then I got a master's in engineering management from the same school. I went to, to Duke, so go Devils. And then after that, I went to work for a major construction engineering firm in Boston, Massachusetts, and worked there for about a year and really wasn't enjoying my job. And for several different reasons I'm sure we'll get into, I decided I would give poker a go. Uh, I was making more money at the time playing poker than I was at my job, so it was not the most difficult decision. Interesting. So let's start way back at the beginning. Okay. Tell me about your first job. My first job, I would say, was probably delivering the newspaper in high school. Um, My sister had a paper route, and she did that for, I want to say it was her junior year in high school. And she decided to leave the paper route, and I took over after her. So I was waking up at 4.30, 5 o'clock, 
delivering the newspapers before school and then get ready and go to school. I had the paper route for almost two years until my dad finally made me quit it before my senior year in high school because he said I had too much on my plate and that he was tired of waking up at five o'clock to get me up when I didn't get up to my alarm. Nice. And what did you do with the, the riches that you were earning as a paper boy? Um, you know, I, I really probably didn't spend a ton of it except for one relatively large purchase before I went away to college. My mom was a teacher at a college, and so she had IT people that she worked with that helped set up the computers for their classrooms. So I got one of these guys to basically build me a computer based on the specs that I wanted from, you know, reading PC gaming magazine and stuff like that. So I laid out the specs and told him what I wanted, and he was able to get it for me cheaper than if I'd bought it from, you know, Office Depot or Dell or something like that. And so I bought myself a computer and a monitor and stuff like that, mostly because I wanted to play video games on it. (laughs) What video games did you play? Half-Life, I think, was probably the game that I played the most. Um, I remember I really liked Roller Coaster Tycoon. Uh, I think I played some Age of Empires, you know, stuff like that. I actually really pl- – I bought the computer thinking I was going to play a lot of video games on it. And after my freshman year of college, I really didn't play a lot of video games on it just because I got too busy with other stuff. So that computer mostly ended up just being a place to download a lot of music because that was back during BearShare and Napster and Kazaa and all that. So I, I'm pretty sure I had a ton of illegally downloaded uh, movies and music on it. So I, I think after this podcast, I should probably watch out for the fence. I, I'd assume they're going to come and get me. So. They definitely are. Yeah. And was it normal in your in your family to have a job growing up and to kind of pay for things on your own or so my parents were they were very generous but we didn't have allowances and they didn't really give us just a lot of spending cash so any anything we needed we would certainly have whether it was sports equipment or clothes or or books or movies or you know we weren't wanting for anything but i mean we're firmly a firmly middle class family and if i wanted to have spending money, then they said, you know, get a job. So I got a job and getting a job allowed you to not just go out and meet up with your friends, but go out and pay for the movie that you want to go to and go out to dinner with your friends. And, and more importantly, it allowed me to put away some money that I eventually used to do things like buy a computer. So nice. And then you went off to college. I went off to college. So going to college, I immediately, the plan was like, get a job as soon as I got there. And where did you grow up, by the way? I grew up in, in Huntington, West Virginia. And what was college like? College was great. I, I had a real blast. I went to Duke first and foremost for, for academics, but I also really wanted to play baseball there. And when I got to Duke, I uh, tried out and successfully walked onto the baseball team. So college was was really hectic, really busy, and really great. Um, I had a, a pretty full-time job. I had a, almost a second full-time job in playing baseball, and you know, school was was pretty hectic because I was I was double majoring in uh, political science and civil structural engineering. And what was the other job that you had other than baseball? So when I got to school, I realized right away that I needed to get another part-time job because I needed to get some spending money. My parents were, you know, picking up a lot of the tab on my tuition, but. Uh, the fact is that you live a pretty poor life in college, you know, based on the little bit of money you get to eat in the cafeteria as a freshman. So I was, I wasn't on scholarship. I didn't have any scholarship money, uh, no money from the baseball team. So in order to 
get some money to be able to take my girlfriend out for dinner or go see a movie or do whatever I wanted to do, uh, buy alcohol, even though that, that I was under 21, uh, I started delivering laundry. There was a student-run laundry company on campus. They had just opened up that year. They basically had a delivery service pick up and drop off your laundry over like about a 48-hour turnaround, uh, wash, dry, fold, and then they did dry cleaning as well. So I started out as a delivery guy because I had a car. So I would sit with the owners of the company, and they would send me out to different dorms. I'd pick up the laundry, bring it back, and then two days later, I'd go to the laundromat and pick it up and drop it off. And you know, the first day I showed up and they sent me off to a dorm. The dorm was across on the other side of campus and I got the call and I started running and I ran and picked it up and I ran back. And when I got back, the guy said, what, why did you run to go get that? And I said, well, if I run, it'll go faster. And he thought that was great. He was like, oh, I just, I just assumed that I was going to have to like try to motivate you to work, but you seem to want to work. So I would run around. I would take extra shifts. Eventually I convinced them that I could do entire shifts by myself so that they could pay me more salary and cut out an extra employee. And then after that, it led to them promoting me eventually to operations manager. So I was basically, uh, I was doing a little bit of marketing, all the customer service, all the scheduling, payroll, hiring new employees and stuff like that. That's a lot for a college student to be taking on. You know, it was, it it was a lot of um, responsibility, but the hours were very flexible. We had, we only had a few scheduled like hours that you had to do every, every week. And so I was able to do those hours, uh, within the context of baseball and school. And then the rest of the responsibility, it just kind of became like a rote normal thing where it's, you know, at this time of the week, I sit and do payroll and I cut the checks and, you know, I send out the schedule on Sundays. And if we, if I have to fire an employee, then, you know, I I make time to, to find a new employee and stuff like that. And the marketing stuff was relatively easy. It was mostly just posting flyers, making sure the website was up and running. And the customer service was when we had problems, I had to take the voicemails from people that had complaints and call them back and make sure they were happy and that we, we found some kind of resolution. Um, and then some Sometimes I had to call people's parents and deal with that because, uh, not shockingly, the kind of people that get their laundry done for them in college oftentimes have their parents complain when their laundry isn't done the way they want. So That is not surprising at all. No. That is interesting. I mean, I don't think that a lot of college students get that level of responsibility that quickly. I mean, at some point, you're, you're effectively running the business on their behalf. Yeah, so I, I think by the time... The, the guys who started the company graduated and they sold it to another student for – I think that you know, they did pretty well. I think they all kicked in like a couple grand to start the company and they sold it like a little over a year later for about uh, – it was a little under $100,000. So it was a pretty nice turnaround on their investment. And the guy who bought the company basically didn't want to do anything. So he, he just started paying me like $25 an hour, which at the time seemed like huge money. I, I was so – excited to be making $25 an hour, but it was basically run the company for me. It got to the point where I was actually even doing some price point analysis based on some surveys that I was giving. I had a, um, an operations type engineering class. And so I I used that as an opportunity to give a survey out to a bunch of students about, um, whether or not they would take the laundry service if it was at a different price or with different options, and then use that to kind of 
get a better understanding of what our market was and how we could adjust our price in order to make sure we were getting the most value per customer. Essentially, could we lower prices and get enough customers to make up for our lowered margins, or could we raise prices and the loss of customers would actually uh, uh, still be able to be within our, our gains and margins? So it's kind of interesting stuff that, that g- it gave me a lot of um, random business experience that you don't expect you're going to get in college. It sounds like it was also related to the things you were learning in the classroom as well. Yeah, I well, I don't think it really had a lot to do with my political science classes. I do think that um, anytime you're you're doing any kind of engineering, even something like structural, civil structural engineering, a lot of it is it's how systems work, and so there's a, a lot of math and physics in structural engineering, but. There's there's remarkable similarities between a class like fluid dynamics and how data and markets work. Um, there's similarities between modeling and uh, the physics that explains how things work in, in the actual world. So sometimes you don't really realize that you're using the same kind of problem-solving techniques until you just do it. You see a problem, you try to solve it, and your education, without you even realizing it, has prepared you for that. That's really interesting. Did you do your master's at Duke as well? Yeah, I did. Um, so my master's was engineering management. It was a new pr- program that Duke had only had going for a couple of years. The best way I can describe it is that it's kind of like a, a light MBA program with a lot of technical leanings. Um, a lot of the classes were project management, patent law. Uh, there was some operations management. There was... Oh, I'm forgetting now. It's been a long time. There was oh, uh, like uh, corporate finance stuff like that. So there's there's some overlap between an MBA and there's a lot of overlap with some stuff you might have in a master's of uh, of engineering outside. And so I stuck around for an extra year to do that. My primary reason for doing that was I had a year of eligibility to play baseball and I wanted to play my last year of baseball. And then I also thought it was going to be a really good program because I realized that I had a lot more interest in the business of engineering than I had in the engineering itself. So I thought that studying the, getting the master's in engineering management would start preparing me for a career on the business side of engineering. So how did you end up arriving at engineering as uh, a discipline or, or area of study? You know, that that's an interesting question. And I think that if I could go back, that's probably to me where I think I made some poor career decisions out of high school. You know, I thought that I really was interested in structural engineering because I did occasionally like building things in like science fair projects or in physics class, you know, you'd have to make a boat out of certain amount of materials and like you know, whoever's boat could cross the lake in the fastest amount of time won. And I really enjoyed those kinds of things. But looking back now, what I really liked was problem solving. Mm-hmm. And the building, I mean, is just things that kids like to do. People, you like to build things. You like to make things. But I thought that what I liked was was structural engineering. And, and it turns out I studied structural engineering and I never really loved it. And I think I knew while I was in college that I didn't love it. But at the time when I could pivot and look at taking uh, going a different route or, or starting a different major, I was also trying – I was on the baseball team and the adjustment in schedule and the change in class. If I had done that, there was no way I was going to graduate in four years. And Duke is not a, a cheap school. And so the cost was too prohibitive for me to – put on a potential fifth year of school. How did you pick structural civil engineering over the other disciplines in engineering? So the other disciplines that Duke offers is 
uh, biomedical, mechanical, and electrical. And I ha I didn't have any experience with electrical engineering to know whether or not I would like it. And so I just decided, well, if I haven't ever done anything in it, I must not like it. So I kind of eliminated that. Mechanical, <laughs> yeah, I, I know this is not this is not exactly the most highly developed uh, process of analysis here. I was 18, and I would say my understanding of engineering was was pretty slim. I'd say it still is. Um, but mechanical engineering is actually, I think, what I probably should have done. But mechanical engineering, I looked at the classes, and a lot of them looked not super exciting to me. So I just kind of looked at the class list and was like, no, that doesn't sound really interesting. Biomedical, I really didn't have any interest in because the biomedical is a lot of pre-meds at Duke. And so you have to – you take a lot of classes that are all filled with pre-meds, and so they're curved on the pre-med grade. And I was a good student. I'm not going to say I wasn't a good student, but I really didn't want to get lumped into a bunch of classes with a bunch of crazy Duke pre-meds. And I can say this because my wife was one of those crazy Duke pre-meds. And, you know, that that wasn't going to help me to have to be graded against. So I, I did a couple of those classes. Like physics had all the pre-meds in it. And uh, needless to say, those weren't my best grades. So, Why poli-sci? Poli-sci was just because I love politics. I've always loved politics. I did debate in high school. I really like to argue. I like to formulate arguments. I like to present things to people. I like to speak in front of people. And the power structures of politics I find really intriguing. I think that that is a job path that in a different life I definitely would have taken. Um, the main reason that I turned away from politics was because my then-girlfriend, now-wife, told me that if I ever went into politics, she was going to be really, really angry with me because we <laughs> don't always agree on everything in terms of our political leanings. And she said that Politics just wasn't going to be a future for me. And you know what? I kind of just said, okay, fair enough. I can find something else to do because I like you a lot. So, Having had many political discussions with you over the years, I probably would agree. That was probably a good idea. You know, I think that uh, we won't get into politics because nobody wants to hear it on a podcast. But I, I like to think that I approach politics the same way I approach problems. And that's with an open mind, unbiased and I try to weigh things objectively, which is interesting because I certainly didn't grow up that way. You know, I had a lot of political influences from my parents and my community and your region that you grow up in the country. And they really tilted me towards a particular mindset about the world, which I almost totally disagree with now. Because over time, you start evaluating other modes of thought, other uh, pieces of information, other opinions, other facts. And it totally changes the way you see the world. I haven't I'm not exactly the the classic case of going from from liberal to conservative or conservative to liberal. I'm more of just kind of like a throw, throwing them both out the window. But unfortunately, there's not really a future uh in politics for people that like to think about things objectively and logically. So Right. Ooh. Politics. So you're in <laughs> So you're in college now and you have two degrees brewing. One's in political science, which we yeah. can rule out as a future career. Yeah. Once in structural engineering, which you're not super psyched about, but seems like the path you're going to follow. Yeah. You also have a part-time job running a small business in the laundry industry. industry? A laundry yeah, it's business. A service. It's a service industry. A service yeah. industry. And you're a full-time baseball player as well. Yeah. So there, there are effectively, at this point, three career choices for you. You could arguably go on to run this this or some other small business. You could have a career as a professional sports player, or there is a world where you go into engineering. How did you think about all of that in terms of what your future held in front of you? 
Um, you know, I, I think the, the biggest problem is, is that I didn't think enough about what I wanted to do and I more thought about what was coming up next. And if, if I'm realizing anything as I get older, it's that I'm not very good at planning for the future. I'm very good at making a pretty good decision when it's presented to me. I can do very good long-term analysis, but not very good long-term uh, planning. I guess planning is really the essential word. So, so when I'm I'm wrapping up playing baseball at Duke, and I had three pretty good years, and then one not so great year, I still thought there was like a slim chance I might be able to play professionally. But if I did, it wasn't going to be for big money. So, when you're thinking about career, the first thing you think is like, well, baseball is not going to be a career. It may be something I can I get to do, but it's not going to be a career. And then when it came to to like running a business. Basically, I didn't think I would make as much money out of college if I went into the business world as I would if I went into engineering because the doors were open for engineering. You graduate with a degree in engineering. You go to get a master's. And so uh, I guess I should add this in. As part of the, the getting the master's, um, I applied for a – it was basically like a scholarship program through the company that ended up hiring me out of my master's program. And the deal was uh, they would pay for what – basically worked out to about a quarter of my tuition for my master's in exchange I would go to work for them after college which sounded like a really good deal at the time because what they pitched it as was the training that you're going to get in your master's program which was highly business related it was operations and project management and and the business development side of of engineering they were suggesting that if I went and got this master's, that they wanted people like that to come into their company and transition from the, the technical side of structural engineering into the business development side. And they said the biggest problem they have is that their engineers that go to work as managers don't have the requisite people and business skills that they need. And so I was under the impression that process was going to happen fairly early. So I thought I was going into structural engineering and was going to end up doing business development. And that turned out to not exactly be the case. Yeah, I think what you're saying about engineering is probably true generally, that there are leadership and soft skills that you need to do other jobs, which is not actually emphasized much right. within technical education specifically. Right. I think that's exactly right. I think that it's it's a lot of it is self-selecting. The kind of people that um, self-select into engineering uh, often are not the most socially developed or that interested in business. A lot of them are super smart problem solvers who really could care less about margins and marketing and customer service, which are important things. And the fact of the matter is that the technical side is is the product and has to be good for any technical business to work. But the other side has to be pretty good too. And so a lot of technical companies are realizing that the, the technical people just need a little time developing those business skills, and then they become the best of both worlds because having the knowledge of the product is very important when you're on the other side of it. I, I think, oddly enough, I probably did not have the same technical aptitude that a lot of my fellow students had, um, and I got by just with some hard work and just kind of making it happen. And maybe the the, the business social skills uh, I'm, I'm kind of struggling for a word here, but but maybe those skills were things that actually came a little bit more natural for me. And so maybe I wasn't destined to be an engineer, but that's what I got a degree in. So your college career in, in baseball wraps up. You get close to graduation, and yeah. you have an extra year where you earn your master's, and this company pays for part of it. Um, what happens next? What happens when you get closer to graduation? 
So, so I'm going to wrap up my master's and my wife, who is in the process of uh, doing research at Duke, she had graduated the same year as me. At the time, I guess she was my girlfriend. Um, she's doing research at Duke and she is applying to med school. She gets into Harvard Medical School and that's where she wants to go. So I talked to this company who uh, I had had given me the scholarship. They have an office in Boston and we plan to move to Boston. So uh, our my master's year ends up. Uh, it wraps up. I have a, a pretty down year baseball, which was frustrating. I kind of eliminated my hopes to get drafted or, or sign as a free agent. And then um, we move out of our apartment. We have some friends that uh, let us crash at their place for like two to three months in the summer because neither one of us are working at the time and we're moving to Boston at the end of July and the beginning of early August. She's going to start school. I'm going to start a job. We're both basically broke at the time. And uh, because the the little bit of money I had saved up when I was working as a when I was running that that small laundry business, I had spent as I left the laundry business in order to try to improve my prospects on the baseball diamond for my last couple of years. And I had a couple other jobs with some other companies. I worked at GlaxoSmithKline for a summer and and worked at the uh, the bookstore on campus for a few months. But I really didn't have a lot of money saved up and the cost to move to Boston pretty much wiped us out. So we're broke. We load up the truck with all of our stuff and we come up to Boston and I get a job and Katie starts going to school and we settled into like a pretty normal post-college routine. I'm going to work 40 to 60 hours a week. I commute downtown on the, on the T into the, the high rise office building. And I sit in my cube and I do AutoCAD structural engineering documents and Katie goes to med school. That's a big change. It is a big change, and unfortunately, I, I wouldn't say it was a change I enjoyed very much. I like structural engineering in general as a something to study and something to learn about. What I found was is that the grind of being a day-to-day structural engineer in a cubicle in an office with no windows with a team where I think the youngest person on my team was probably like 33 or 34 years old. At 20, I guess at the time I was 23, I think, 22 years old or 23 years old, uh, the whole process to me just quickly became very like mind-numbing. I found it to be a huge grind right off the bat. Did you know much about what this or any other professional structural engineering job would be like when you were in college or, or back when you were selecting careers? You know, I don't think so. And I think um, part of that is due to the way they teach structural engineering at Duke. It's a very um, theory-based curriculum. They spend a lot of time focusing not necessarily on how you're going to do things in the field, but why things work the way they do, which is great for, again, that, that kind of problem-solving process that, I've, that we've kind of mentioned before. It's great for developing your, your problem-solving and understanding of systems. It doesn't necessarily prepare you to work as a structural engineer. So when I went to work in the office, the first thing I realized was they just wanted me to do a bunch of arithmetic with programs, basically. Like, look at it, look at a drawing. There's a bunch of numbers on it. Plug it into a program where the numbers go and spit out the answers and make sure the answers uh, abide by the code and then give them to me, which there's no thinking or problem solving at all. It's mm. You're basically just doing checking and editing work for the, the you know high-level structural engineers who are developing buildings. Now, out of college, I certainly shouldn't have been developing a building, but unfortunately, the job is fairly boring. While you're getting a lot of experience, it's just a lot of really basic tasks. And then as you're in your cubicle, how does that go? So, you know, I would, um, <laughs> I had a cubicle that was luckily in the corner of the office where none of the people that were on my team really worked. And I got all of my work done fast. Um, so 
I, I screwed around a lot, basically. Like I was the kind of guy who I would find a way to get my work done in a couple hours and then be like, okay, well, they don't have anything else for me to do, so I'm not going to go take this and tell them that I'm done because then they'll just give me some busy work. So instead, you know, I'll find something that I want to do and I'll do it. So I would mess around with computer software, like other different structural engineering software. And then eventually I started messing around a lot with like poker software and studying and learning poker because I got very obsessed with playing the game. And so I was killing a lot of time at work when I would get a task, I would finish it relatively quick, I would have a lot of time to kill, or there would be, you know, they, they just wouldn't have anything for me to do and they'd just tell me to hold tight. And while I'm sitting there, I would just kind of get into poker because that was that was something that I was very interested in. It was problem solving and it was definitely better than sitting half asleep in a cubicle in a dark cubicle at the end of the office. Makes sense. So going back to when you said that there wasn't really a lot of information about what the job was like, I think that that's generally true. And I think even when you go out and try and find that information, I think it's very hard to discover to spend a day with somebody and understand what a job is really like or understand what a specific company is really like. Uh, I think it's very difficult to get access to that information. That's exactly right. And I think that if I could go back and do it again, I, I had a, a couple in, uh, internships while I was at Duke where I did – I worked with some structural engineers. And a lot of those internships were really boring, but you didn't care because the money was decent in the summer and you're working a summer job and you know it's going to end at some point. So you don't really pay attention to what you're doing. And if I could go back and talk to myself at that age or or anyone else who's in the process, I'd say – First off, if you can, go and get an internship in a job you're looking at doing and actually think about what it, whether or not you like that internship. Don't just think about it in the context of, well, I'm making some money, I'm killing some time, and you know I'm going to go back to school in three months. Actually think about what you're doing. Do you enjoy what you're doing? Do you find this interesting? Because this is what you're going to be doing if you get this job. And then more importantly, talk to the people that you're working with and ask them about how things are going to change and evolve, and evolve as you learn more and get more responsibility. Because to be honest, uh, if you had told me, if I had gone back and talked to myself while I was doing those internships and said, do you want to be the structural engineer that you're learning from this summer? Do you want to be this guy in 20 years? Do you want to have his job? I would have said no. And obviously, if the answer is no, then you probably shouldn't go and get a structural engineering job out of college. But there's something about that process, I think, when you're very busy and you've got a lot of stuff going on when you're younger – it's very easy to just drift into things because something way down the path set you in that direction and you end up there. And so that experience of going in and getting a real feel for the job, finding out whether or not you like it, and then maybe making some adjustments to your decisions in the long run is probably a good thing to do. So you're playing poker at work. <laughs> yeah, let's get down to brass tacks. I'm, I've, I'm definitely playing poker at work. This is, this is the fun part of the story. So you're, you're playing poker at work, uh, yeah. maybe napping under the desk. I've done that before, too. <laughs> I've, although not at that job. I didn't nap under the desk at that job. That was at a previous job where I was with a company where basically everyone in the company worked from home. And so I came in one day, and I stood up in my cubicle of about 100-plus cubicles. You know, this is like an office space moment. And I look around, and literally the entire 100-plus cubicles are empty. And I kind of yell like the cave. It's like, hello! And nobody... Nobody responds. Nobody stands up. There's nobody there. And I was tired, so I just crawled under my desk and took a nap. Brilliant. By the way, is my name going to be on this? Because I, I'm in the process of looking for jobs. So. No, we're going to anonymize all this. Oh, that's good. Yeah, that's good. So that's, that's what I need. 
But you are playing poker at work, and it's, poker at work. how are you doing? Are you enjoying yourself? Is it more for fun and killing time, or are you? How are you thinking about it? I, I assume at this point you're not thinking about it as a career. So I started playing poker on like baseball road trips. We would get meal money, and we would start gambling on the back of the bus on road trips. And I w- I'm very gamble adverse, if that makes any sense for a professional poker player. Is I don't like betting money if I don't feel like I have a very like solid, understandable edge. And so I played a couple times, and I, I lost some money, and it really upset me. So this is back in college, and I buy poker books, and I study poker. And then I get caught up in this whole wave of, of this poker boom, right? The Moneymaker ESPN coverage is on all the time, and I think that stuff is awesome. Look at these guys. You know, They're in the casino. They've got their sunglasses on. They're all a bunch of gamblers. Like, what? Like wow, what a life. You know, that's, that looks amazing. And then like rounders as a movie which you know super entertaining movie still love it to this day and i think what a life you know going from card room to card room and you're you're using your wits to you outwit somebody to make money you don't have to work for anybody and as a guy who's working for everybody in college working for everybody else that sounded awesome but then as i studied the game i don't approach the game like uh this idea of this this gambler, I approach the game as somebody who wants to win and wants to really understand it. So I do it from a very technical, you know, data-driven standpoint as I'm constantly reading books, I'm on forums, I'm browsing forums. And this is going on from 2005, 2006, up until 2007 when I'm now working for this structural engineering company. I finish my work at 5 o'clock and I get on the tee and I go home and I go home and I have dinner and then I sit and play poker. And I would play for a few hours every night and I would post strategy hands on forums and discuss strategy and I would go over my database of software and look at, at all these different statistics about my play and I would constantly be evaluating my play and I you know I had Excel spreadsheets and poker tracking software and all this stuff. And I, I took it very seriously to the point where I'm definitely treating it more like a job than I'm treating my job like a job. That's pretty intense. Yeah, I don't think I ever took poker lightly. Um, I, I didn't want to lose. If anything, it speaks to I, – I think I'm a really competitive person. I mean most of your most of your people that are athletes in college would probably say they, they're competitive people. But I was always really competitive even with stuff like uh, – like I used to play magic cards when I was uh, – shout out to my nerds out there. Uh, <laughs> I used to play magic cards when I was in middle school and even up until like a few years in high school. I was not exactly like a popular cool kid. So me and my, my nerdy friends, we would we'd play magic cards. And I loved magic but i wanted to win so like building the new deck the new strategy you know i would read the strategy articles on the websites and i would buy the strategy magazines and i'd want to have the the good cards and i always wanted to win and so poker was just this extension of games playing and strategy games to me strategy games have always been like one of my favorite things to do i always for years i said that i had never lost a game of monopoly and as far as i know i still haven't lost a game of monopoly but uh it could just be that i'm selectively omitting some of my losses over the years so i don't think monopoly is a game that you could particularly dominate people at either i don't think that there's like a world series of monopoly well, there actually is. There's a world championship of Monopoly. The problem is that the strategy for Monopoly is like there's only there's an optimal strategy, and it's all understood by all the people that play in like the world championship of Monopoly. So it really comes down to pure luck. Like once you understand what the basic optimal strategy is, there's really nothing else to do. Interesting. The Monopoly tournament, by the way, is called Under the Boardwalk, and I'll link to that in the show notes. Oh, really? Yeah, and it is held uh, in Atlantic City, as it should be. What happens when Atlantic City is no longer there in three years? Where are they going to move that tournament? Well, I guess it looks like they do it elsewhere as well. 
They okay. do it, you know, Vegas and DC and so on. Now it's good to avoid. It's good to avoid Atlantic City when possible. Indeed. So the question that I remember asking you at this time when we became friends was, okay, you're a professional. Pro- you know, you weren't professional at this point. You were playing poker a lot in your yeah. spare time. Were you making money? I was making money. It goes with most poker players. You start out making little bits of money, and then you lose some money. And so it's you, you spend a lot of time. So I, my, my poker story is, and this is something you'll hear from a lot of professional players, in 2005, uh, Party Poker would give you a free $100 to play on their site. Like no strings attached. All you had to do was you sign up, you get 100 bucks, and as long as you uh, bet it enough times, basically you pay enough in expected rake, then you can cash out that hundred dollars. So there's no there's no strings attached. If you lose it, you lose it. If you manage to play long enough that and you still have some left, it's your money. So I start off with a hundred dollars, and this is in two thousand five. And that hundred dollars like goes between about like a hundred dollars and about twelve hundred dollars between two thousand five two thousand six. And then the summer of two thousand six, when I've got those couple months to kill before I move to Boston, um, when my wife and I are basically house sitting for some friends in North Carolina. I have nothing to do. I have no job. I have no school. I'm starting a job in two months. And so I just played poker all the time. And I don't think she was too happy about that. Um, but I was playing poker like four hours plus a day. And, you know, my, my bankroll is slowly, slowly growing. It's turning from like $800 to $900, 900 to 1000 1000 1200 And then it would get up to like close to 2000 and you lose a bunch. And that's how it goes in poker. And then you're back down to $1,000 and you, you drop back down and then you start grinding again. So I get to 2007, and at this point I have uh, probably four to five thousand uh, dollars worth of poker money. And there's something that happened in the poker industry where uh, Party Poker stopped offering games to U.S. customers, and so I transferred my money over to Full Tilt Poker at the time. So I'm playing on Full Tilt Poker with a couple thousand dollars for most of 2006. And at some point, I found a couple strategy websites where they, they did videos. Um, one of these sites was deucescrack.com, which I think still exists. I think Deuces Crack still exists. And then I was spending a lot of time on 2 plus 2 forums, um, which all poker players will know about. And so between these two things, I started to become a pretty good player to the point where I had turned that few thousand dollars in 2006. By summer of 2007, I think I had it up to around 30 grand. Um, which is a pretty good working bankroll to the point where I was playing games that were like I was mostly playing limit hold'em, and typically it was limit hold'em between five and ten dollars per bet, and like twenty and forty dollars per bet. So I'm sitting at the table with you know four to five grand at a time, playing you know in pots where you easily can lose you know four to five hundred dollars in a hand. And what's the? I think the second question I remember asking was, what's the legality of online poker at this point? And that that becomes the a big pivot point to a lot of a lot of things in my story is online poker, with the exception of a few states, uh, I believe Washington and Illinois are the two main ones, is legal for everyone in the U.S. There's no law that says you can't play poker on your computer in your house. The problem is, online poker was being offered by offshore companies, and offshore companies, which are having huge deposits made to them by U.S. players. Um, most of which most of these people never get their money back, creates essentially a financial black hole that our Department of Justice, our IRS, were not particularly happy about. So the U.S. government uh, essentially said that 
U.S. banks and U.S. credit card companies are not allowed to deposit to online poker or online casino sites. So players can play, but they can't put money on the site from their bank or their credit card. And they can't get money off the site from their bank or their credit card. So if you already have money on the site or if you know a workaround to get money on the site, you're good to go. So it's, it's legal, but it's hampered, I guess is the best way to put it. It's interesting that you approach this in such an analytical fashion. Do you feel like most of the people you play poker against were doing the same? I think the vast majority of the successful players are. And you can have success in poker without being a highly analytical person. But I would, you know, the contrary argument to that is that you're an inherently analytical person who is not good at expressing your thoughts. Because I don't believe that you can do poker even though it's a game that's relatively simple in its rules, uh, it's a game of incomplete information in which there's a lot of estimations and calculations and problem solving. And if you don't have the education that would teach you how to do these things, you're going to have to just develop those skills over time. And so even though you may not be able to put it into words the way you're analyzing a poker hand, you may not have the, the hard technical skills for it. If you're good at poker you're probably good at problem solving. It's just it's very hard to be. And the thing is, is the game, there's a lot of luck in the short term, but in the long run, there's very little luck. So the players that are successful in the long run are all highly analytical. And so this becomes a bigger and bigger part of your life. And how do you change from doing this part of the time for fun and profit to doing it full time? How does that go down? So I, in 2007, I'm making more money per hour playing poker than I am at my job, and I am enjoying playing poker when I'm, I'm dreaming about poker. I, I read about poker. I think about poker when I'm at work. I think about poker when I'm playing poker. I think about poker when I finish playing poker. I have dreams about poker. I wake up in the morning thinking about poker, what I'm going to do at night, and then I go to work, and I get by at work, and then I come home and I play poker. That's what I want to do, but I also am playing baseball. I still play baseball um, in a league with mostly college players, and I still love playing baseball. And there's part of me that still thinks I'm good enough I could play professionally. So I know that if I just quit my job to play poker, it seems like that's that's something that you don't do, right? I don't. I, I guess it's societal pressure. Part of it is going to be coming from your family. But if you told people, I'm going to leave my job and I'm going to play poker full time and leave my job as a structural engineer, which I went to a good school for, to play poker, they're going to tell you you're nuts. But if you leave your job and you say – I want to be a professional baseball player, and I'm going to try to be a professional baseball player, and I'm going to pay the bills playing poker while I try so I can train and put in more time. That makes a lot of sense because we revere athletes, and we revere that nobody ever has a problem with going after the dream of athletics. So I have these dual dreams, and I think, well, why don't I just make them one thing? And then that way when I'm talking to people, if you don't like – if you don't think the poker thing makes sense, you can kind of – you know, you'll say, oh, well, he's, he wants to play baseball. So I understand this. Or if you think the poker thing's really cool, then, you know, oh, it's cool that you're also going to be able to work out a lot for baseball. So I decide I'm going to leave my job and I'm going to play poker full time. I was thinking about this for a long time and then I had a like a yearly review with the head of my division and we discussed my future, and I realized that the future that I was hoping for in the company was just not on their schedule. And so when that happened, I gave him my two weeks' notice and uh, decided to move on to, to poker and baseball. I think it's interesting that people have such a positive reaction to chasing the dream of being a professional athlete, 
And that seems less risky than actually being a professional gambler itself, where which is maybe, depending on who you are and how you approach it, I, like it's hard to assess the le- relative risk level across both of those, but one of those is a better movie, so to speak. Yeah, I think it really has to do with the fact that the vast majority of people are extremely risk adverse, and they also view anything that has anything to do with gambling in a, in a very strong light of degeneracy, right? It's If I go to be a professional athlete and I fail, you just say, oh, well, everybody wants to be a pro athlete and they don't make it and they fail, so that's no big deal. What did you lose? Well, I mean, you lost years of, of work and effort that could have been spent doing something else that might have resulted in a successful career in something else. Um, you may have lost friends or, or family or you know job opportunities. There's a lot of opportunity costs, but people don't really think about it in those terms. They just look at it as you went for it, you put a lot of time and effort, no big deal. But the people who go for it in something like poker, when they fail, they don't fail because they won money. They fail because they lose money. And so now there's like a tangible loss impact. And so people look at it and say, oh, well, you went and gambled and you lost all this money. See, there was this big risk. What a dumb decision. And instead of looking at it as there was an opportunity cost and maybe you made bad decisions or maybe you got unfortunate or something like that, they're just going to look at it as, oh, well, you know, you got involved with degenerate gambling and it didn't work out for you. So there's definitely, there's a lot of negative associations with gambling in general. And I understand why there are negative associations and poker gets those same associations. And so when you say you want to play poker, even if you're not a gambler and you don't like gambling and you're going to play poker because you think you can make a lot of money and you have a very strong perceived edge backed up with a lot of data, people don't take the time to process through all that stuff. So you quit your job. I quit my job. With confidence or you you worried or... You know, I I don't think I was worried because I was young and, you know, who cares if it goes bad, right? You're just going to figure out the next thing. I was 23, 24 years old at the time. And so I'm thinking, if this doesn't work out, I'll just go find another job. In fact, when I left the company, they said, you know, in six months to a year, if you don't make it as a baseball player, you know, I didn't really tell them about poker because I didn't want to, you know, cast myself in any kind of negative light if they had any of these preconceived notions about it. Uh, they said, if baseball doesn't work out and you want to come back, we'd love to have you back. So I knew there was there were going to be job openings for me if I decided that this wasn't going to work out. And then this is full time. And then what's a typical week for you like at this point? So a typical week for me is – and you know, I, we, we've talked a lot about poker because it's the interesting story and it stretches out for like seven years. But baseball is a really big part of this. So I leave my job in October of 2007 and typically what happens is uh, you know, I'll wake up in the morning. I make some coffee. I make some breakfast and then I sit down and I, I go to work. I, I play for several hours. Then I take a break and you know I actually started a blog at the time, so I'd oftentimes write a blog post and I would post on strategy forums, I would watch strategy videos, you know, do normal stuff. And then uh, the wife would come home from med school. We would have something to eat. She would start her homework and I would start playing poker again. And I'd play for a few more hours. And then right around, say, like midnight or so, she's probably gone to bed. And then I would say probably three to four times a week. Uh, I would get in the car and I would drive about 15 miles out of the city of Boston to a baseball training facility where I had made a deal with the guy who owned the facility and I could go in off after hours. I, I could 
access the key through a lockbox. I would open up the place and turn on the lights, and I would uh, throw bullpens by myself for like an hour to two hours. And if I wasn't going to throw a bullpen, I'd usually work out that day. So I would usually work out or go throw a bullpen sometime after midnight before about three or four in the morning. That's a full day. It's a full day, but, you know, it's a full day on your own schedule. So it's, I mean, everybody works a, you know, people that work work hard, work a full day. I just had the advantage of I got to work on my own schedule. So, you know, you could go throw a bullpen. I could have gone and done it in the morning. I could have woken up earlier and gone and done it in the morning and had gotten the same amount done every day. But if I went and did it in the morning, I would have to fight the morning commute traffic, and then I'd have to fight the lunch hour traffic on the way back. So I scheduled my day around when people weren't going to be busy. So for example, I would go grocery shopping after I threw a bullpen at four in the morning because there's nobody in the grocery store. And you remember that Shaw's across the street from the apartment building. There's nothing better than that Shaw's at 4 a.m. and it's absolutely empty. So I can get my grocery shopping done in like 20 minutes where other people would have to go after work and it's six o'clock and the place is packed and you got to wait in line. So there's, there's huge advantages to being able to totally structure your day around your own schedule. And I should note for the listener that we used to live in the same apartment building. So then what happens on the so the poker front it kind of we have a sense of where that's going to go but how does baseball turn out are you uh trying out for teams are you trying to get into the the minor leagues or what's the system there Yeah so so baseball if you don't get drafted or signed by a major league affiliated team the the process to get into professional baseball is find an independent ball team or go to affiliated tryouts. Well, I being I played in the ACC, which while I was there was one of the best baseball conferences in America. So the scouts had seen me. I'm on their radar going to a tryout. It's probably not going to get me signed. I have to prove it. I have to go play at a I have to improve my game and then go play at a professional level and prove it and then get signed. I had a, a teammate who had done exactly that who was a year older than me at Duke who uh, turned down, he got drafted one year, turned down the signing money went back to school, had a bad year, didn't get drafted the second time around, worked his way up through what they call unaffiliated or independent minor league baseball. So I'm searching for minor league baseball teams. There's a lot of, of independent minor league baseball teams in the Northeast, and my hope is that I can find a team that's not too far from Boston so that I'll still get to see my wife you know, pretty frequently, but that I can find a team that's in the Northeast, and that's where the best independent uh, leagues are and play for one of those leagues. So I find a bunch of tryouts. The tryouts are in uh, February and March, and I go uh, to one of the tryouts. I mean, I'll say this. I put in a lot of work that year. It's by far the best I ever was as a baseball player. And when I went to the, the first tryout I went to, they right away told me they wanted me to come to spring training. Um, now, spring, coming to spring training doesn't mean you make the team, but it means you have a chance to make the team. And then I got calls from a couple other teams that said they would also like to have me at spring training. And so what I should have done in retrospect is I should have researched and found out which one of those teams had the worst returning pitching staff and which one of those teams had the most guys retire. And so and look at which team I needed to fill a lot of roster spots. Instead, what I did was I went with the first team that invited me to spring training because I assumed that they must really like me if they got to me first. Well, they just got to me first because they saw me first. Mm. So I went to spring training with them in the spring of 2008, and there we had like 19 pitchers competing for, I believe it was three spots on the team. And we're there for a week. This was in Worcester, Massachusetts for a team, uh, the Worcester Tornadoes. The league that they were in doesn't exist anymore. It's called the Can-Am uh, Canadian American Professional Baseball League. And um, I, I make the first like three rounds of cuts. We're down to, we've got about, 
three people left or four pitchers left for like three spots. And I'm feeling really good because, you know, I've thrown well in scrimmages. I know that I impressed them with my work ethic. I know they liked the fact that I came from a good school. They had some kids from Ivy League schools. They had a lot of smart players on their team. I think they liked it was easy for them to work with uh, with smart players, in their opinion. The manager was uh, Ron Gedry, former catcher of the Boston Red Sox, who's kind of a local legend. Um, he was a really nice guy. So I, I make it down to the final cut, and um, the funny thing is they, they're putting us up in a hotel for this week in Worcester. So I'm staying in Worcester, Mass., which is a pretty exciting town. <laughs> so we're in Worcester, and I've got, my roommate gets cut. So now I've got a room all to myself, and that's not so bad. Um, and then the last night I'm there, uh, or sorry, the next to last night I'm there, a guy shows up and he knocks on the door and he says, hey, I'm, I'm your roommate. They just traded for me. So they had traded away a position player for a pitcher who was now my roommate. Unfortunately, this means that one of their spots is, is now taken. We're now down to like two openings on the squad because if they trade for a pitcher, they're not going to cut him. So about this time, my, my wife is also having her birthday. So for the I, I do the last day of tryouts and then uh, – I decide I'm going to drive back to Boston for the night and celebrate her birthday with her because, you know, happy wife equals happy life. So we go back. We have a little dinner, a little birthday. I go to bed. I've got to be back in the locker room at 6 a.m. in Worcester. It's about an hour drive to get to Worcester. So I wake up. I get in the car. I drive. I get in the locker room about 545 for the, the morning practice. The next day, uh, we're going to leave and go to Canada for our, our first road trip. And one of the managers comes in, or one of the coaches comes in and says, Jim, uh, Ron's got to talk to you. manager's got to talk to you in his office. And I think, oh, crap. So I end up going into Gedry's office, and he very kindly cuts me from the team, which I really wish he had done the day before, and it would have saved me two drives driving to Boston and back that I unnecessarily had to do the next day. Um, they were really nice about it and told me that they really liked what I had to offer. They actually called me later in the summer, and they were – potentially looking to sign somebody and we're checking in to see if I'd been working out, but it, it didn't work out with, uh, with the tornadoes. And, uh, so that, that was kind of my last ditch attempt to play professional baseball. So from there, as you looked at that opportunity, did you feel like it was your last ditch opportunity because that was your only shot? Or did you feel like as an athlete, you had a certain window in which to be successful or, did you feel, you know, I guess, tell me why you felt like it was your last shot. I think it's a little bit of everything you just mentioned. Part of it is when you get cut like that, you know, it's very demoralizing and you're kind of faced with like the, the reality of your mortality as an athlete. And every, every person who's an athlete faces this at some point. And, you know, I think that the true, the true highly competitive, the people that really love their sport are constantly in denial about their mortality as an athlete. You see this all the time in professional sports, guys that are out there that really can't do it anymore and they just keep going after it because they're in denial because they love the game and they want to keep doing it. When I got cut, I was faced with the reality that I was probably not going to be a major league baseball player, which I already knew. Like I knew that, but then again, it kind of slaps you in the face. You also realize that if I'm going to find a team, it's not going to be this close to Boston, which means you know, I immediately had somebody tell me, hey, if you want to get a, play independent ball this summer, I'll get you on a team, but it's going to be out in the Midwest. So I'm going to spend the next six months traveling around small towns in the Midwest, you know, totally across the country from my wife. I'll never see her. They don't pay you anything. You play independent ball, you make like a thousand bucks a month. You know, it's nothing. So you're not doing it for the money. And if you love the game, if they turn it into such a situation where you're not going to love doing it, then it's kind of hard to keep loving the game. So I... Started playing that summer in a summer league in Boston, a league that I played in before, a league that I still play in. 
I had a really great year that year. My summer league won the championship. Uh, you know, I, d- I don't regret not uh, pursuing more professional baseball after that that cut. But I think that was kind of a reality check. I mean, I knew I knew what was going to happen. I knew I wasn't ever going to be a major league baseball player. But you know, to get cut in that way, and then at the same time, uh, it turns out I was making a lot of money playing poker. And so as I kept making more money that summer, you know, the the idea of going to play uh, professional baseball for pennies across the country seemed less uh, enticing than being at home, playing baseball with friends, making money playing poker, and getting to see my wife all the time. So baseball goes away, and you're left with poker. Yeah, yeah, but I I will say baseball didn't totally go away. I still play a a ton of baseball. I actually still coach baseball, but but you're right. As a career. career, As a career path, baseball is, you know, it was a coffin lid that had 20 nails in it, and the 21st got knocked in there. Yeah. So then tell me more about how poker evolves to be the primary way in which you're supporting yourself and your wife. Yeah. So poker had been, you know, it had been my primary income ever since I left my job uh, as a structural engineer. And things, uh, thankfully, just really kept getting better. You know, I made more money my second year than I made my first year. And I made more money my third year than I made my second year. And then by by about 2009, uh, yeah, I'm getting this right. 2009, um, things really just kind of blew up. I made a few changes in, in how I played the game. I changed from playing limit hold'em to playing no limit hold'em. I changed from playing um, six tables at a time of like uh, uh, six-handed, six players at a table, to playing like 16 to 20 tables at a time of uh, nine-handed. And it, I found what was kind of my niche for the market at that time. I, it, it turns out in a nine-handed, you know, I, I will make this. I will make this statement, and I, I think that it's not too outrageous. When it came to nine-handed cash online, no limit hold'em, between 2009 and 2010, I don't think there's probably more than than a half dozen guys in the world that were any better than me. I was. I was very good. I made a bunch of money. What I wasn't good at was. Um, Moving up to high stakes, so I had a few really awesome years, and then there was some some issues with the market and and these sites with the U.S. and so things started to change eventually. What happened there? Uh, I think this is the Black Friday incident. So yeah, so you know I I have a great 2009, I have a great 2010. The market in poker never gets better; it always gets worse. As anybody will will quickly understand, the sites are taking money out of the pot. Right? Just imagine the poker market as just a big pile of money. You know, and your your recreational or casual players that are frequently losing, they're putting in pretty much all the money. Then the site is taking out a little bit every second. So that, that pile of money is getting a little bit smaller every second. And then the winning players are taking out big chunks all the time. And the losing players, what happens is eventually they very often decide, screw this, I'm not going to play poker anymore because they lose for a long time and they either don't have the money to do it or they just get tired of the game. So there's less people putting more money into the market. And then what happens is some of those casual players that were before putting money in but not taking any out, they start getting good. So they start taking out too. And so that pile of money keeps getting smaller and smaller. So I knew the market was getting worse in 2009 and 2010, but the money was still really good. And the the flexibility of my schedule was awesome. It was the opposite of college. In college, every hour was planned. I was super busy all the time. Now with poker, 
I planned my schedule and I could do whatever I wanted. Um, and then I get married at the end of 2010 and 2011 rolls around. 2010, probably the, the best year of my life. I get married. We have a, a wonderful wedding. I had a very good financial year. Um, got to see so many friends and family at the wedding and just really everything worked out great. And then 2011 rolls around and this event in the poker world known as Black Friday happens. So Black Friday is the U.S. Department of Justice moved on poker stars and full tilt. They seized their websites and brought a lawsuit against them um, claiming that they had attempted to defraud several banks in the U.S. and evade the UIGEA and that if they this settlement wasn't paid up, that they were going to bring further legal action against them. So that's that's not good. No, it's definitely not good. And it effectively ends online poker in the United States as we know it. Yeah, exactly. Right. So poker had changed a couple times in the US and this is like the biggest the biggest thing to stop really you know, at the time it was still easy to get money online to these sites because what they were doing, which is why, you know, the DOJ went after them, is they were essentially setting up shell companies where if you wanted to deposit on the site, they would have you call some number and you would give them your credit card info and then you would look at your credit card statement and it would say that you had put in a deposit for like a hundred bucks for golf balls from some some company. In reality that money was going on to full tilt. For me as a winning player, I never deposited, so I didn't I didn't care because the the sites could easily wire money to banks and banks didn't really care if they're getting wires from from legitimate other banks. So these these companies would wire money to some, you know, a German bank or or a French bank or whatever and then that bank would wire your money to you and you know nobody really cares. Um but the Department of Justice puts an end to this when they basically say, if you guys keep servicing U.S. players, we're going to come after everything you've got. The problem with that was one of these two sites, Full Tilt Poker, had been basically running – a Ponzi scheme is not the right word. But they had been running without keeping all of players' deposits in the bank. So they've been shelling out money to their executives and to their players and, and all that. They've been paying dividends. And they've been paying major uh, marketing budgets. They've also gotten a bunch of money stolen from them, from essentially money launderers that that knew that they couldn't. There was no uh, government for them to go seek recompense. And so, Full Tilt is running at something like a couple hundred million dollar deficit. So, there's players have three hundred plus million dollars on the site that they're gambling with. If all that money went into play. And Full Tilt only has like $80 million on the books. So effectively, they're, they're behaving like a bank that is not right. backing up the deposits. Exactly. Exactly. Because even though poker sites aren't banks, um, there's a lot of uh, rules for the places where poker sites are regulated. Like the Isle of Man is one. There's a gaming commission of a, a Native American tribe in Canada that's one of the regulatory commissions. So they basically are trying – you're supposed to have all the money on site, and they, they did. So I went from having like about $70,000 on full tilt to having what was basically a big number in my account that was ostensibly worth nothing at the time, uh, which was a, at the time three-quarters of my bankroll. So suddenly I'm faced with the idea that I'm going to have to start from scratch as a poker player and that three-quarters of my bankroll just got taken from me. So if this is your job, how does it impact your job? And do you think about continuing to do this as your job or do you start to evaluate other jobs? Yeah, that, you know, a, a little bit of everything. At first you think, man, there's no way I'm ever going to play poker again. This has totally devastated the industry. And so you get out your resume and you, you clean up your resume and you start looking at jobs and you apply to some jobs and you start talking to people about it. And then what happens is then you start thinking, well, maybe there is a way I can keep playing. 
So you find other sites that you can still play on. And I basically deposited. I, I decided I wanted to keep trying to play. I had a lot of money saved up. I was very, I'm very frugal. I'd been saving my money for years. So I wasn't in any uh, danger of going broke. But I certainly didn't want to deposit my savings on some site that I wouldn't trust. So I decided to deposit a very small amount of my savings onto a site, and I would start from scratch and try to grind myself a new poker bankroll, and then just keep my eyes open for for potential jobs. And this, you know, this is in the summer of 2011. So I put a thousand dollars on a small site, and I basically start from scratch again, playing games that are you know an eighth or a tenth of the stakes I used to play at. And I slowly turned that thousand dollars into about I think I had about twenty five to thirty thousand by the end of the, the year. You know, in the process I'm I'm eating through my savings because I'm using my savings for living expenses. And so even though I'm making money playing poker, where before I was making enough money to pay bills, put away for savings, put away for my retirement, pay off my student loans, you know, I'm I'm doing very well. Now I'm basically making enough money to rebuild a poker bankroll while my savings deals with, with regular expenses. And that becomes kind of a strain. It changes the way you look at it because all of this, again, as I said before, I'm not a gambler. I don't really take dumb risks in my opinion. And so I had gotten myself in this situation where I built up a very low risk of ruin by being very careful with how much of my money I played and having a really large bankroll. And suddenly that risk of ruin changes because a large amount of my built-up bankroll is gone. And so I'm starting from a, a new place of small bankroll, having to lean on my savings. My income is really taking a hit. And how does that turn out for you? Well, you know, there was – I will say that I think it's a testament to myself as a poker player that I still played. I played in 2011, 12, 13, and all of 14 professionally. The market for poker players has turned really, really bad. I mean I constantly on forums when I speak to other aspiring professionals, I tell them this is not the time to go pro as a poker player. You should get an education. You should find something you really want to do. And keep poker as a fun hobby on the side. You can make money on it on the side, but it's not a good time. I mean, this the, the poker market. It's very similar to what happened to like day trading in the early '90s. Is that you know there are so many players now. There are so many people playing professionally. There are so many people at every level of the market, from the micro stakes playing for pennies to the people playing at the highest stakes that are takers from the economy. There's just not enough people putting in to where it it makes it a reasonable way to invest your time in terms of a large return of investment uh, in your career and your future. So I changed games over the course of three years. I went from playing nine-handed back to playing six-handed, uh, no limit hold'em. I eventually changed to where I started playing pot limit Omaha. I, I mixed in a lot more tournaments, and you know I made money, and I, I've made money, and I've been able to live as a professional poker player comfortably. I've continued to put away money for my retirement, my savings, but it's not a career and it's not growing to anything and the market's not getting any better. And so what's happened is as I've done this for year after year after year, what originally was this very freeing experience of flexible time, flexible schedule, really exciting thing that, you know, it, it, all of my problem solving strategy game obsessions, this hit all of them. But now I'm stuck in a situation where I'm grinding out something that I'm not enjoying very much. And there's no, there's no end game. It's not going anywhere. Hmm. It's interesting how, from the external perspective, if you look at the life of a professional poker player, where you make your own hours, you're free to work from wherever you want, you know, you assumedly go through a lot of highs and lows, but you make yeah. decent money uh, if you're sensible about what you do, that that could ultimately, that any job with any trappings could be unsatisfying at some point when you don't really feel like it's going anywhere. Right, exactly. I think a, a lot of what I've realized is that 
I love poker because it's I love the game, but part of the the thing that I liked about poker is that it gave me free time to pursue a lot, a lot of other learning opportunities. I mean, I'm I'm the kind of person that goes on the deep Wikipedia dives, you know, and just I like to read a lot of books, and I like to listen to a lot of podcasts and stuff. So this gave me a chance to travel and learn things and experience things and do things that I otherwise wouldn't have been able to do. I tell you what, there's no better way to spend your mid to late 20s than as a professional poker player. Unfortunately, you start to get older and the idea that you can play poker anywhere, yeah, that's true. It's true if I want to just go hop on a plane and leave my wife here in Boston. But, you know, things change in your life. Um, Flexibility that you once desired becomes less important. And then eventually you realize, too, that it's a very isolating profession. It's almost impossible for me to talk to anybody about this because it's very abstract in the way that I've come to think about the game. And also, it doesn't really translate very well to most people's normal day-to-day jobs. And I can try to make it translate in the conversation, but it doesn't necessarily go over so well. And like you said before, there's a lot of highs and lows. And the emotional highs and lows really do take a toll on you. I can imagine. So you've already undergone a number of big career changes, and now it seems like you're about to embark on another one. I'm hoping so, yeah. Um, I basically decided in the last month or so that I needed to stop dangling my toes in the job pool and just jump in headfirst. So I made uh, the decision to contact somebody where before I had been Oftentimes, you send out a resume, you reply to a a job posting, you send a cover letter, you know, you ask about something. But it doesn't really go anywhere because everybody can do that now. You know, every every job is on the Internet and a million people can apply to it and everyone sends in a resume. And the first thing I'm sure that any person in that process is doing is just looking for a reason to cut out stuff that they have to read. So they see a professional poker player. And they're not going to read my resume uh, because it's just weird. It's it's out there. But if you're going to dive in head first, instead of you know sending out resumes, I found a job that I was interested in, and I started instead of sending in a resume, I found somebody that was working or associated with that job and and set up a meeting with them and started talking about it. And that process has has really got me excited about moving on from poker, whether it be in this opportunity I'm pursuing or, or whether it be something else. What did you learn from previous professional experiences, which is helping you as you look for the next career? I think a big thing that I've learned is I really enjoy working as a team and with other people on things is that uh, as much as I enjoyed poker and it's an isolating profession and you're working by yourself and you know, the money you make is the money you made. It's not, you don't make money for other people and you're not paid a salary. So if you don't put in the hours, you don't make money and it's up to you. But I also, I've been coaching college baseball for about three years now. Um, It's just a kind of a small thing that takes up some time in the fall and the spring. And I, I absolutely love it. I love the process of working with the other coaches. I love mentoring players. I like everything about that. And I realize that part of the thing that I'm liking about that is that I feel like we're building something. We're working as a team towards a project. There's goals. There's a schedule. There's structure. And you are you have to work well with other people. And that was something that seemed less important to me 
when I left my job as a structural engineer to play poker. And I think in retrospect, it wasn't that those things aren't important. It's that at that particular job, I didn't really experience a lot of that. There wasn't really a, uh, much of a sense of teamwork or camaraderie. I didn't have a lot of employees I, sh- I had a lot in common with. And I wasn't very excited about what we were building towards because I was working on such small abstract details that I didn't really feel very involved in it. And so instead of, I think I drew some improper conclusions, which is that I didn't want to work for other people and that I wasn't always sure that I wanted to work with other people. When in reality, what it was is that job wasn't right for me. So I do want to work with other people and I'm really excited to get back towards having goals and structure and projects and working with a team and, and building something instead of just kind of going through this daily grind. So it sounds like the biggest thing you're bringing from the previous experiences to the new adventure is knowledge of yourself. Is that fair? Yeah. Yeah, I think I think that's really true. I think um, there's a lot of time for self-reflection as a professional poker player, and so you come to a lot of a lot better understanding of of yourself as a person than you would have otherwise. And what would you, I guess, looking back, what advice would you give to someone who's in their 30s and and looking to move into a new career? What general tactics do you think are helpful that are going to equip you, or do you feel like are going to give you a leg up as you go on to the next thing? I think the the first thing is, you know, set down what it is that I guess there there has to be some constraints, okay? Because you can't go about best finding the next job or career for you if you don't know what best means. So you need to know, is the most important thing to you how much money you make? Is the most important thing to you the, the location of the job? Is the most important thing to you the hours of the job? Or is it being in a particular field? Is it doing a particular job? And it can be some mix of all those things. But understand what it is. Set some baselines where I need to make X amount of dollars. I'm willing to work this amount of time. I need to be in this city or I'm free to go anywhere. Or it could be just this job, this field, this is exactly what I want, you know. There's no point in looking at every job because every job may not even be possible for you. But then find something that really gets you excited, a job where you immediately see that and you think, I I could do that. I want to do that. I'm excited to learn about that. And then don't apply for the job because applying for the job won't make any difference. Find the person that is doing that job, whether it be at the company you want to apply for or some other company you can get in touch with, and set up a a meeting with them, whether it be to get coffee or over a phone call or a Skype, even if you can just get started an email exchange. Set up some way to talk to this person and find out what it is they do. Find out what you can do to become an applicant so you'll really have an opportunity to maybe get a position. And more importantly, find out if you really want to do the job. And that process is going to help you decide, one, if you really want to do the job. But more importantly, it's going to actually get your foot in the door. So you're actually talking to people that could get you that position. And the process becomes a lot clearer of what to do. Because the whole process of me finding another job has been a lot of drifting because I didn't take the time to just stop, ask somebody, set up a meeting, and start going over what I needed to do. I think that's reasonable advice. And I think it's news to most people as they look for jobs that actually applying to the form, this is not true of ThoughtBot.com, I should note. If you are applying to ThoughtBot, you should fill out the form. But for most companies, filling out the form and submitting your resume doesn't get you anywhere. And helping yourself stand out is really the critical piece of of getting yourself noticed. Anything else you'd want to share before we wrap up? 
You know, I, I want to say, uh, first off, uh, let me give some credit to, to Adarsh because even though we're talking about this stuff on the podcast, he's actually been really helpful to me. A lot of this advice that I, you know, he asked me to give some advice. This is advice he gave to me. And I have to say that I listened to uh, one of the first episodes of the podcast that went up and I thought it was excellent. And there's really great advice on there. One of the things that really, I'll say this is a weakness of myself, is that sometimes I feel this paralysis caused by lack of innovation or invention, right? That I feel like there's no point in me going after a job or a position or this thing you want to do because I'm not going to be the best. There's always somebody that's better. And if you Google search it, you'll find that there's already people that have done it and they're all better than you. And so you get kind of frozen and you think, well, there's no way that these people would hire me to do this or there's no way that I could work in that field. And you really just need to ignore that because first off, not everyone is going to be an innovator or an inventor. I'm certainly not. Pretty much my way of learning things is find somebody who's done it before and try to learn from them, from what they've already done, and see if I can build on it or apply it to what I'm doing. And more importantly, the world is humongous, and there's billions of people out there that need something done for them, a service or a job or whatever. So you don't have to necessarily be the greatest ever if you just love what you're doing and you work hard at it, there's a pretty good chance there's a place in the field for you. So just find something that you really love and get excited about. And don't worry if maybe you're not totally ready for it in terms of skill set. Don't worry about if you're not inventing or, or innovating in the field. Just go for it. Just go for it because if you really love it and you really are going to work hard, you're going to find a place for yourself in the field. Oh, that was really nice. Oh, thanks. <laughs> thanks for your time, Jim. No problem. Next time on Reboot, I'll be talking to Tim Huang of Imager about robot lawyers, awesome foundations, and his many, many side project hustles. Today's show was produced and edited by Tom Obarski. Our theme music was produced by Don Akuta. You can find his work at soundcloud.com slash Van Ariel. And show notes can be found at rebootshow.fm slash four. Feedback is always welcome. By email, you can send us a note at hosts at rebootshow.fm or on Twitter at Reboot Show. Thanks for listening. Hey.